scripture reading that we've just had, John letting us know why he wrote his gospel account, but as we know, that could sum up all four gospel accounts, letting us know who Jesus is so that we can have faith in him and that we can have that eternal life. Appreciate Brother Billy picking out the songs that go along with the lesson. The songs almost preach the sermon themselves, so we're going to touch on a few of those key points that we just sung about uh, just a few moments ago. Uh, but we appreciate the presence of each and every one of you that's here this evening. Uh, again, if you're visiting with us, we appreciate your presence among us uh, to worship with us in spirit and in truth. Uh, again, if you're visiting with us and maybe you're looking for a church home, we hope that you found a place uh, right here. Uh, we do appreciate you being here. We know that you can be uplifted by being here. Our Bible study classes will help you grow in the knowledge and truth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And especially the family here will help encourage you to stay faithful down that pathway of life. Uh, this evening, we're going to look at Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you know Jesus? Of course, we have individuals in the world that may de describe Jesus Christ as being Savior, as being Lord, as being Master, as being that compassionate one, uh, that one that shows comfort beyond uh, description. Individuals might pour out their heart of love that they have in trying to describe Jesus Christ our Lord. And those of us that are children of God, it ought to be the same way. We could probably list dozens and dozens of descriptions of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But maybe tonight you don't really know him. Maybe you don't really have that relationship with him that you want to have or that you want to cultivate. And I hope as we go through the scriptures this evening that something can be said to help strengthen your relationship with Jesus Christ and to help you to grow with our Lord and Savior, Jesus. There are some who describe Jesus with uh, some not so pleasant terms. Perhaps you still have your Bible in front of you, uh, John chapter 20. Turn to John chapter 8. A long chapter here. Fiction couldn't be written any better than John chapter 8. But this is not fiction. This is the word of God. This is true. This is what actually took place. Uh, this is a confrontation between some religious individuals that just did not like Jesus Christ. Uh, they tried to tempt him to sin. They tried to tempt him uh, to get in trouble with uh, the governors of the land, the Roman Empire. They tempted him on many occasions, but it just did not work. Even at the early part of John chapter 8, uh, these religious leaders, I don't know how they did it, but they did it. They went out, they caught a woman caught in the very act of adultery and brought her to Jesus Christ our Lord and more or less saying, what are you going to do about it? And Jesus asked, what does, the Bible, you know, what, the, what does the Old Testament say? But he also pointed out to them, if you're without sin, pick up a stone. The Old Testament, Jesus implying the Old Testament says stone her, but the Old Testament also says stone the man too. Both of them caught in adultery. Both of them were to be put to death, but they only brought the woman. But Jesus knew their hearts, but Jesus was able to stand bold and courageous before this mob that they could kill him or try to kill him. That's what the intent in their heart, as the end of John chapter 8 points out. But Jesus said, you that are without sin, you know, cast the first stone. Nobody did it. They left. Jesus didn't condemn the woman, but he told her, go and sin no more. In other words, he's implying forgiveness. I know you've done wrong. You know you've done wrong. You know that you should be killed for this sin that you committed. But Jesus said, go and sin no more. How compassionate is our Lord? See, the religious leaders, they didn't leave. They stuck around with Jesus Christ, our Lord. But then they start describing Jesus, as I said, in some unpleasant terms. Look in verse 17 in John chapter 8. Here he says, 
It is written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bear witness of myself and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. Then said they unto him, Where is thy father? See, we don't read about Joseph right now. They're asking him, Where's your daddy? Where's your father at right now? They had many questions that they would like to ask his earthly father. Where is your father? Jesus answered, You neither know me nor my father. Now he's talking about God the Father above. You neither know me nor my Father. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. See, our lesson deals with do you know Jesus. Jesus wanted people to know him, but he also wanted people to know the Father as well. These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no man laid hands on him, for the hour was not yet come. Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way, and you shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. He didn't hold anything back. I'm going to go my way, you're going to go your way, but you're going to die in your sins. And then Jesus also goes on to say, whether I go, you cannot come. The Jews said, will he kill himself because he saith, whether I go, you cannot come. See, this is their self-righteous mind. Where he's going is hell. He's talking about, you know, is he talking about killing himself? Is he talking about committing suicide? So they're describing Jesus Christ as being suicidal. He says, where I go, you can't come. In their mind, they're going to heaven. They're so righteous that hell's not going to be their home. Heaven's going to be their home. And any place that they can be without Jesus, if they're in heaven, Jesus must be going to hell. So they're thinking that he's going to kill himself. No, Jesus is not suicidal. He's already told them, you're going to die in your sins, implying they're going to receive the consequences and the eternal consequences of their sins. But he goes on to say, as he said unto them, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins for if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. And they said unto him, who art thou? And Jesus said unto them, even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. Uh, Jesus made it plain, he's the son of God. He came to do the will of the father. But he gets in this confrontation with these religious leaders on this occasion. So first they think he's suicidal, verses 20 and 21. Uh, in verse 41, they describe him as being some illegitimate child. Notice verse 41. Jesus said, you do the deeds of your father. And they said unto him, we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. You may not know what they're exactly saying right here. They're implying that Mary was fooling around before marriage. They're implying that you were born of fornication. Fornication is something that individuals commit before they get married. You see, they looked into the books. When they looked at the time that Joseph and Mary got, Joseph and Mary got married and the time that Jesus Christ was born, it wasn't a nine-month period. It was shorter than that. She was pregnant before they were married. And so they looked into the books and they're saying, you know, we be not born of fornication. So what are they describing Jesus our Lord as? Not only is he suicidal, but now he's some illegitimate child born of fornication. If you don't think that's the case, look down in verse 48. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, say we not well that thou art a Samaritan? What does that mean? Well, they knew Jesus, or pardon me, they knew Mary was Jewish. Samaritans were a mixed race. Gentiles having sexual relationships with Jews and therefore bringing forth a mixed race that's called Samaritans. 
Uh, Brother Ray so ably taught us Wednesday night a few weeks ago, going back to the Old Testament, to show us how Samaritans came to be. Jews that were left in the land during the time of captivity, Gentiles came in, they took unto them wives, they had children, and it was a mixed race. So if you don't think they're saying that Jesus Christ was an illegitimate child and Mary was committing fornication before marriage, what do you think Samaritans means? Well, Jesus, don't you think that we can call you a, a mixed race individual, a Samaritan? They're not holding anything back, but Jesus doesn't hold anything back either. They say, well, shouldn't we describe you as being demon possessed? They knew Jesus could perform miracles, but they gave the credit to Satan and that demonic world. You see, we can describe Jesus Christ as loving and caring and com compassionate, but they're saying he's suicidal, he's illegitimate, he's a Samaritan, he's demon-possessed. On other occasions, such as Matthew eleven nineteen, they say he's a gluttonous individual, he's a wine-bibber. We use the term alcoholic today. Uh, they seem to say, well, Jesus was always where the wine was. He's a wine-bibber, he's a gluttonous individual. Uh, they're not saying he's someone who's actually following after God. But you see, that's how they described him. Isaiah in the Old Testament described our Lord in, in a lot better terms. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. He described Jesus as being wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Each one of those titles could be a sermon in and of themselves on how wonderful our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. Again, if you don't know him, we want you to know him tonight. He is wonderful. He is a counselor. That is, he can work on your behalf, not only because of your sins, if you look at it from a legal standpoint, but the scripture shows us that he can uh, reveal himself through his word to you on how compassionate he is to help you through those sins, to overcome those sins and have those sins washed away. He is a counselor. He is the mighty God, the everlasting father and the prince of peace. So let's see also how the Bible describes our Lord. As I mentioned, the song that we sung touched on a few of these. But first of all, we notice that Jesus Christ is that righteous one. If you have your Bibles, look at 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. 1 John 2 verse 1. This aged apostle, writing unto the churches, to children of God, he said, My little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. If any man, ha if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ is righteous. Let's look first of all at his life. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, King James says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. American Standard Version says, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus was born during the Old Testament times. Jesus was born of a woman. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ our Lord is brought out in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, he was born in this world. He's born pure. Contrary to what our religious world teaches, that a man is born in sin, people are born in sin, uh, they grow up in sin, sins in their life, they inherit sin. But we notice this morning in Ezekiel 18 and verse 20, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. We sin when we transgress the law of God. We're not born in sin. Jesus was born pure, but not only was he born pure, he grew up living that pure life. If you look at Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, the Hebrew writer says, We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points like as we are. He was tempted, but yet without sin. We have a Lord that knows what temptation is. Matthew 4, Luke chapter 4, uh, John chapter 14 and verse 30, Satan tried to tempt him on various occasions. But the Hebrew writer says, 
He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. The Bible describes temptation coming through the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Those three avenues that Satan tries to use to tempt us to sin. He tried to tempt Jesus Christ. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to give in to temptation and to commit those sins. But Jesus Christ was righteous. Well, how is that? Well, the Bible describes Jesus Christ our Lord as, as one who did always those things that pleased the Father. Uh, when you look at Jesus Christ doing that, from the time that he grew up as a child, reached that age of accountability, whatever that might be, time of maturity, some folks say maybe 8 years old, 10 years old, 12 years old, maybe a little bit older than that, but it really doesn't matter what time because the 33 years he spent on earth, he did not commit one single sin. Well, how is that? He kept all God's commandments. Look beginning with his baptism in Matthew chapter 3. Wish we had time to look at how John talked to these religious leaders, the same one that Jesus talked to, John that is John the Baptist. But in Matthew chapter 3, after John the Baptist rebuked those religious leaders, telling them if they're coming out to his baptism, bring proof of your repentance, show me and show God that you're truly repenting. But these religious leaders, they didn't come out to be baptized of John. They came out to see what he was doing. But then Jesus comes to John, Matthew chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him, and then Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. On this occasion, Jesus Christ is 30 years old. Luke chapter 3, verse 23, I believe, brings that out. When Jesus began his ministry, he was 30 years old. Three years later, he would die upon the cross. But at 30 years old, God said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But in this passage, I want you to notice, Jesus told John, since God commanded baptism, God commanded the Jews to get down into the water, God commanded the Jews to repent of their sins, to confess their sins, Jesus was Jewish. He had to obey God's commands, but there was no sins that he needed to repent of, no confession of sins that he needed to make, but God wanted the Jewish people to be baptized, to be immersed in water. And so since God commanded it, and John says, Jesus, I need you to baptize me, and you're coming to me, Jesus said, let it happen. Let's fulfill the word of God. Thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. And that's what Jesus did. He fulfilled all righteousness. Now think about how we sin. We sin by our words. Some of you heard this from me before. We sin by our words. We sin by our thoughts. We sin by our actions. We sin by our inactions, knowing that there are things that we need to be doing and we don't do them. James says, well, that's sin as well. He that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. So Jesus, every word, every thought, every action, every inaction was always the right one. You have right and wrong. And so here's Jesus Christ, our Lord. Every situation, from that young kid as a child of, uh, of accountability, growing up to 30 years old, 33 years, every situation, he said the right word, he had the right thought, and he performed the right action. Now, how do we fall short? 
children of God, we want to describe ourselves as being righteous. But how do we fall short? Something happens to us, the wrong word comes out of our mouth. And then we're saying, God, forgive me. Something happens to us and then Satan puts these thoughts into our mind that we're trying to come up with ways to retaliate or have revenge. And, and then Satan gets these sinful thoughts in our mind and we sin and we're saying, God, forgive me of these thoughts. Or, God forbid, Christians doing things that are wrong, committing sin, and then saying, God, forgive me, I, I've sinned. Let Satan overcome us, and we sin, and we have to ask God for forgiveness. That's what John says. If any of you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Come to him, repent of that sin, confess that sin, that sin can be forgiven. But how do we sin? And then as, as you live your life, stop and think about it. Every situation you face, what does God want you to do? Say the right word. Have the right thought, perform the right action, do what's right, glorify God. And that's what Jesus did on every single occasion, tempted at all points like as we are, yet without sin. Aren't you thankful that God, when it comes to our thought process, we can't have two thoughts in our mind at the same time? That's why the Bible in Philippians uh, chapter 4 uh, verses 7 and following tells us about the right thoughts. Think on these things. You want to get your mind right? Paul says, think on these things. Think on these things that are holy, just, and good, and that are pure. And so God created us in such a way that we can't have two thoughts in our mind at the same time. Devil tries to put thoughts in our mind. Well, confront that by putting godly thoughts in your mind. But we look at our Lord. We want to tell folks that, yes, he is Jesus Christ, but he is that righteous one. And if you can explain how he lived 33 years without a sin, that will amaze some folks. You know, that sounds right. It's not that he's just God, but as a human being, every situation that he faced, he always said the right word, always had the right thought, and always performed the right action. That's why in John chapter 8 and verse 29, he said, I do always, always, always those things that please him. He's the righteous one, but not only is he the righteous one, he is the redeeming one. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Titus. In Titus chapter 2, <clears throat> this morning we talked about grace, or pardon me, mercy saving us. Grace saves us, but here Paul, as he's writing to Titus, tells us that grace is a teacher. Uh, in verse 11, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us. God, through his gracious providence, extending his love to mankind and this gospel to every creature under heaven. God shows us that grace teaches us. His grace teaches us that we should deny ungodliness and worldly lust. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Notice this, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And then Paul says, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no man despise thee. Our Lord is that redeeming one. What that means is that our Lord purchased us. Our Lord made it possible to purchase mankind to be a part of his family, his church, his bride. But there are those that think they can be saved by other ways. They can be saved by good works. They can be saved by good merits. Uh, they can be saved just simply by doing good things. Uh, but the Bible tells us how we're exactly saved, how we are redeemed. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 
That's what Peter wanted individuals to understand, how they're redeemed. They're not redeemed because they give a lot of money on Sunday. They're not redeemed because maybe they do a lot of benevolent work. They provide money to the poor, uh, necessities of those folks that are poor. Uh, some folks think they're, they're redeemed because of how much they give. But Peter confronts that idea and he says uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, For if you call on the Father, uh, who without respect of person judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, or that is your vain manner of life received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without spot, uh, without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for you. What Peter is saying in that last verse is, Jesus knew before heaven and earth was created. Jesus knew before the first human being was created that he was going to die for the sins of mankind. That's the eternal purpose in God's mind, which, which is a church, a place of fellowship, that bride that, that is going to adorn herself for Jesus Christ our Lord. It's that eternal purpose. So Jesus knew in eternity that he was going to come to this world and give his life for mankind. Uh, it's easier said than done. He came and lived among men. Try living one day without committing one sin. But our Lord did that. Why? Because he loves mankind. He loves us. Our Lord didn't commit one single sin. Every action displayed God's love and glorified our Father. But you see, that, that young life came to an end at 33 years of age. He redeemed us by giving his life up on the cross shedding that precious blood so that it can purchase our sins. Job long ago pointed out concerning our Redeemer that our Redeemer lives. Now, Job knew his Redeemer would live, Job chapter 19 and verse 25. He knew that the Redeemer would step foot upon this earth sometime in the latter day. Job knew him as a Redeemer. We know him as Jesus Christ our Lord. In John chapter 1 and verse 4, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. This Redeemer stood upon the earth. This one went to the cross and he shed his blood for us so that we can have forgiveness of our sins. But not only does this Redeemer live, as I've been pointing out, this Redeemer loves. John chapter 15 and verse 13. Greater love had no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Uh, each Lord's Day we'll have displayed on the announcements on the screen above uh, before the services start. Those that we know of that are fighting in the military. Why are they doing that? Well, they love this nation. Not just the physical country, they love the people of this nation. They love freedom. They're willing to risk their lives, they're willing to lay down their lives for our freedom. We get to enjoy the air conditioning here in our worship services this evening, uh, but there are some of our soldiers off in these foreign countries, out in the hot sun, the dusty land, sacrificing their lives day in and day out, willing to shed their blood for our freedom. But when you look at our Lord Jesus Christ, yes, this Redeemer loves us, and he says, greater love had no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You look at the Apostle Paul, he was first known as Saul of Tarsus, one who persecuted the church. If the church had a, an enemy outside of Satan himself, it would be Saul of Tarsus. Uh, this was a young man, headstrong. He wanted to find every child of God, bring them and put them on trial, have them confess if Jesus Christ is Lord. And if they did that, 
he would have them stoned. He would watch them be put to death. He would watch them be killed for their faith as Saul of Tarsus. You don't believe that? Read Acts chapter 26 and verse 9. Je uh, Paul said, I thought that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did at Jerusalem, having many of them shut up in prison and giving my voice against them. Them, them, and them, plural. He said, I thought that I ought to do many things contrary to this one called Jesus. Many mamas and daddies he saw stoned to death because of their faith. But then when he realized that he was fighting against God, three days he dwelt upon that. Ananias in Acts chapter 22 said, why are you tarrying? Why are you waiting? Just imagine if you love God so much and you found out that you were in religious error, you were killing God's children, you were blaspheming God's son, how would you feel? Three days he didn't want to do anything at all. He's just looking at how sinful he must have been before God when he thought he was righteous. Ananias is saying, why are you waiting? Why are you tearing? He was tearing because he was going, it, to me in his mind, all these Christians that he put to death, all these children of God that he put to death, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He heard it over and over and over again. He even heard Stephen in Acts chapter, say, it's Acts chapter 7 saying, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. Uh, Saul of Tarsus heard that. But then when the Lord appeared unto him, he said, Who art thou, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus Christ. Lord, wilt, wilt thou have me to do? And Jesus said, Go into Damascus, and it would be told thee what thou must do. Uh, he was told the gospel. It was preached unto him. Three days later, he finally obeyed the gospel. He got over his sinfulness and his thoughts of unworthiness, and he was baptized, and his sins were washed away. But I mentioned a moment ago, look at Galatians 2, verse 20. Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What did you say, Paul? He loved me and gave himself for me. Now, when Paul wrote to Timothy, Paul described himself as being the chief sinners. It's worthy of all acceptation. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That's how Paul looked at himself. If there was a number one sinner before God, Paul said, that would have been me. Because I killed God's children, I blasphemed his son. John would write about the Lord's love. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. Speaking about Jesus Christ, he loved us. Keep that in mind. Do you know Jesus? He loves us. He's that redeeming one. He loves us and washed away our sins with his own blood. We read that, but just imagine that gruesome death that he went through for us. Each and every one of us and all of mankind. So not only is he that righteous one and that redeeming one, but he's also that reigning one. He's in the heavens right now because of how he lived his life on earth. He fulfilled God's will. On the cross, he said, it is finished. He completed God's will on earth. And so God could say that, yes, in the Old Testament times, he's spoken to the fathers by the prophets, but hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 uh, through 3, it goes on to say that whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who is the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. And when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Yes, he finished his work on earth. God rewarded him by sitting at his own right hand because Jesus Christ was a redeeming one who not only purchased mankind by the shedding of his blood, but also purchased the church. He made it possible for forgiveness of sins to be here. So since God rewarded him, 
We'll also notice in the scriptures that we reverence him. Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 11. It talks about the life of Christ, how he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. God highly exalted him, gave him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yes, humanity ought to reverence Jesus for what he had done for us as being our King of kings and Lord of lords. He's reigning in heaven now as our king and as our Lord. As our king, that implies that he has a kingdom. He came to build his kingdom. He told Pontius Pilate in his trials, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my people would fight that I shouldn't be delivered unto you. So he says, my kingdom's not from hence. He had a spiritual kingdom that he come to build. And having a kingdom, he has a law. That's his word that would be preached. Matthew 28, verse 18 and following, Jesus told his apostles, all power in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. He is king of kings. He built his kingdom. He has his laws that have gone forth from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. We have his law written down, and his law is binding upon mankind. His law is going to judge mankind one day, according to Revelation 20 and verses 10 through 15. But not only did he build his kingdom, which also can be described as the church, and not only does his laws bind mankind today, but he also blesses his loyal followers. Now, each day that we live, don't we seek peace of mind? That's a spiritual blessing in Christ. It's already been given unto us. It's like having that treasure in your household and, and just walking by it every day and not opening it up. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul said, God is to be blessed. Blessed be the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's blessed us with A-double-L, all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Peace of mind, joy, uh, encouragement motivation, love, it may be mercy, forgiveness, uh, it's all there. And blessings can go on and on. If each of one of us could write down the blessings that we realize that we receive from God, uh, we would probably have a, a number in the hundreds as we describe our blessings that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. But aren't we thankful that we have those blessings? Do you know this one who blesses us, this uh, one who is righteous, this one who is our redeemer, this one who's reigning, but then finally, uh, this one who's going to return? We don't know when it's going to be. It could be within the next five seconds. It could be 5,000 years from now. But perhaps there's no more comforting word in the scriptures than in John chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to that passage. Sometimes you may hear this at funeral services. If you're like me, I like to read this verse, you know, before that occasion even comes. I want to be encouraged as I go through this life that this life is not all there is. Jesus said, let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Whither I go, you know, <clears throat> and the way, you know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, let's stop for a moment. We read these verses, but in John chapter 14, verse 1, why are they troubled? Well, stop and think about it. If your best friend just told you in two days, 
I'm going to be captured by my enemies. They're going to beat me. They're going to spit in my face. They're going to pull my hair. They're going to beat me with this rod, this reed that they have. They're going to scourge me. The Romans, they weren't uh, limited to 40 stripes upon an individual's back. Going to be scourged by the Gentiles, by his enemies. He's going to be nailed to the cross, which is gruesome and painful in and of itself. If your best friend told you that they were going to die this gruesome death in two days, would you still have a smile on your face? No, you wouldn't. Peter said, Lord, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to let it happen. I'm going to give my life for you. Peter was speaking from a sincere heart. But Jesus told Peter before this night, you're going to deny me three times. He told this group of apostles, one of you is going to betray me. But on this occasion, he spoke about his death. It's coming. It, it's near. It's two days from now. Matthew 26 and verse 2. Their hearts was troubled. This one that they knew for three years that they grown to love is saying, I'm no longer going to be with you. Their hearts were filled with trouble. Jesus says, I'm going to go away. He's already told them when he dies, he's going to end up in heaven sitting at the right hand of God. He's already told them that, but they're so troubled and filled with sorrow, they're not thinking. Thomas saying, where are you going to go? He said, well, you know where I'm going. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to my Father. But I'm going to prepare a place for you. You see, our Lord's going to return. But keep in mind what he left to do, to build those beautiful, that beautiful mansion on high where his precious bride can dwell with him. He's going to come back again for his precious bride. And he tells his apostles, I'm going to come back for you, that where I am, there you'll be also. But not just the apostles, with the exception of Judas. He's going to come back for the church. He's going to come back for the bride and receive them unto himself so that they can spend their eternity with him. See, he's coming back for the church. Unfortunately, in our world today, there's a lot of brides out there. Oh, they've adorned themselves under this religious name and you have Mrs. So-and-so over here and, and Miss So-and-so over there and all across our world, all these religious groups and they think the Lord's going to come back for them. But you see, he died for one church. He died for his church and it's one body. And we want to make sure that we're part of that one body when our Lord comes back again. Question is, are you going to be ready? Do you know him? As the righteous one, the redeeming one, the reigning one, the returning one. He is going to come back again. It may be tonight. Are you going to be ready? If not, get ready tonight. Put your faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as being the Son of God. Believe in your heart that he went to the cross for the sins of mankind. He died upon that cross, was buried and rose again the third day. If you believe that, then be willing to repent of your sins. Lord can help you in that process as well. He's, as we described from Isaiah, a counselor. Yes, sin is there, but if Paul was the chiefest of sinners, what sins have you committed that you think God cannot forgive? That's why we have some great and godly shepherds here to talk to you as well, elders in the congregation who could talk to you about sin and what the Lord can do with that sin. So believing on Christ and repenting of your sins, being able to open up your mouth and say, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, willing to be baptized into Jesus Christ, immersed in water, contact that precious blood of Christ, all those sins can be forgiven. And you'll be ready when the Lord comes back. You'll be a child of God. Maybe you're already a Christian, but yet you've fallen short. If sin is there, deal with that sin. As John said, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Repent of that sin, confess that sin, and prayers can be offered up. So if we can help you this evening, come as we stand and as we sing.